0: it's so good to see you all this morning. Good to see all your lovely faces. Thanks for braving the elements to come to church. Those of you that are watching online with us, we're grateful to have you with us. One congregation here this morning. The third Sunday of Advent, I'm going to be in the book of Luke chapter two again, except I'm going to do the first part of it. We covered kind of the middle part of it last week. So first part of Luke chapter two, if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. If you have mobile devices that you read from, that's great. If you don't have either of those things, uh, that's great too. We're going to have the scripture up on the monitors here on the sides of the stage here. But let's just pause our hearts for a word of prayer. Hallowed be your name in all the earth. Hallowed be your name. We say with the psalmist, you have done great things. This morning we come to remember those great things and to believe again in those great things, the benefits that you've given us, the kingdom that you've opened to us, the promises that you have not only made, the promises that you have answered in Christ Jesus. As Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, every single one of them is yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God the Father. We believe that when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he meant it. It's done. The work is done. Now we pray that you would put faith in our hearts to believe it. And you would send the Spirit to us anew to help us live as the renewed persons you have made us to be in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. We pray that these scriptures would speak to us and help us, convict us, comfort us. That we'd be more fully your people this morning. Grant that, we pray. Let the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. In those days, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own ta- town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and she placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign. Everybody say a sign. Here's the sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger, and suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts." appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests and when the angels had left them and gone into heaven the shepherds said to one another let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about and so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger and when they had seen him they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed And what the shepherds said to them, but Mary treasured up all these things, and she pondered them. I love this, in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. You're familiar with this text, I think, because of Charlie Brown Christmas thanks for that. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. However, Linus says it, you know, and it's cute, and it's fun. And it also makes a really serious point about Jesus and the nature of his kingdom. Luke opens by telling us that the birth of Jesus took place in the days when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Caesar Augustus was the first of the Roman emperors. Rome was a republic for many centuries, and then in the several decades before Jesus came, it fell into political turmoil, and a man named Octavius rose into power about 44 or so BC, and he turned Rome from an empire, or he turned it from a republic into an empire. He became the supreme leader of the Roman world and took the name Caesar Augustus, that's who we have here. And under Caesar Augustus's reign, Rome grew, expanded, all the way from Spain down into Africa, up almost into the German lands, it was this huge, powerful thing, he instituted a police force and firefighters and a standing army, and under his reign, something that came to be known as the Pax Romana came about, the peace of Rome. And Caesar instituted this time of prosperity that was unprecedented in the history of Rome. And one of the things that you had to do uh, to keep the Roman world going was you had to tax people. And in order to tax people, you had to do a census. You had to know who was there. You had to keep track of folks. And so this census is a way of sort of propping up this whole, huge, powerful, empire that Caesar Augustus has going. And Luke says that in the shadow of all of that, in the shadow of all of the propaganda of Caesar Augustus, that he's the one that's brought peace and prosperity to the world. Now Luke says that an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel says to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people For today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. In other words, Luke is being very deliberate about what he's doing. In the shadow of this great military empire, the greatest empire the world had ever seen, ruled over by Caesar Augustus, who called himself a son of the gods. Here actually, just outside of Bethlehem, this new kingdom is coming into being. And the sign is not a great and powerful ruler living in a palace, but the sign of it is that you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Luke is setting up for us a deliberate juxtaposition. I would say it this way, the two kingdoms... Uh, two ways of being are being contrasted here. And the manner of God's coming in Jesus, everybody say the manner of God's coming. The manner of God's coming in Jesus tells us everything about the difference that his kingdom is and makes in the world. The manner of God's coming in Jesus tells us everything about the difference his kingdom is and makes. Three points I want to make to you about the manner of God's coming in Jesus that gives us some clue as to the nature of the kingdom that Jesus brings into the world. Number one, let's say it this way, that Jesus the Christ, the manner of God's coming in Jesus, he comes to us in great vulnerability. Everybody say vulnerability. This is a sign of the kingdom of God, paradoxically is vulnerability. Luke says in Luke 2 and verse 12 that this will be the sign you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Caesar in his palace. Caesar surrounded by his powerful standing army, the greatest army that the world had ever seen. Caesar is impervious to outside threats. That's the nature of the kingdom and that supposedly was supposed to fill the citizens of the Roman Empire with a sense of peace. And in contradistinction to that, Luke says that the sign of God's coming in Jesus is not marked by invulnerability, but it's marked by what? It's marked by vulnerability. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. This is part of what we celebrate and remember when we come into the Advent season. Some of the great Icons of Christian history, this one I pulled from the Eastern Orthodox Church, you can put the picture up on the screen, and you see Mary, and you see Joseph, and you see baby Jesus, and, and we remember when we come into Advent that that tiny human person is what God looks like when God shows up among us. The God who hung the sun and the stars. The God who holds the galaxies in the palm of his hand. The God who keeps the breath in our lungs and the blood flowing through our veins. The God who enables this orderly universe. The God who creates the ox and the donkey lays in the manger and when he comes among us, his tiny little hands are not long enough or strong enough even to touch the faces of those animals who he holds in being at that very moment. You ask the question, what does it look like when God takes form and comes among us, brothers and sisters, it looks like this. It looks like vulnerability. Number two, I would say, what is this text telling us about the nature of God's kingdom? It tells us that Jesus comes to us not just as a vulnerable one, God comes to us not just as a vulnerable one, but God in Christ comes to us as an, as an outsider. As an outsider. Caesar in his palace is the ultimate insider. He stands at the center of power. In fact, he had crushed all of his rivals. The whole Roman world centered around him, the ultimate insider. And yet, when God comes with his kingdom in Jesus... He doesn't come as an insider, but he comes as an outsider. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him where? In the manger, because there was no guest room available to them. Imagine that. The God of the universe shows up in human flesh, and we don't even have space in the inn for you. And so they have to go and they have to lay him in a manger, put the scripture, put that uh, picture back up on the, the screen here. You might notice that Mary and Joseph are not just in a manger here, but they're also in what looks like a cave. Do you know that the Greek word for manger also means cave? And in the first few centuries of the church, it was commonly thought, that, and that's because that's where shepherds often hid their sheep. They actually created mangers out of caves. And so in the first few centuries of the church, it was widely thought that when Jesus came, he didn't come. Like we have all of these sort of like nativity set ideas about what it looks like when Jesus comes. He comes to this nice little, you know, it's, they didn't have any room in the hotel, but the barn at least was pretty nice, you know. But if the history is to be believed, then listen, when the God of the universe comes among us vulnerably, he also comes buried in a hole. In the ground. There's no room for him. Not in the center of power, not in the temple, not in Pilate's palace, not in any of those places, not in the hotel, not in the inn. They bury him in a cave. Ladies and gentlemen, he comes to us vulnerably. He comes to us as an outsider. And then, thirdly, he comes next point he comes to the outsiders. He comes to the outsiders. The narrative, Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, says that it would have challenged the values of many religious people who despised shepherds because shepherds kept them from participation in the religious activities of their communities. Brothers and sisters, shepherds were despised in the first century. And when the angel comes to announce the glad tidings of God's salvation, who does the angel come to? The shepherds out in their fields at night. But they're not in the temple. They're not at the center of the religious life of the community. They're they're outsiders. And the angel comes to them and announces the good news to them. And so they go to that hole in the ground. And they begin worshiping Jesus. And the word of the angel is confirmed to them. And do you know what happens to the shepherds after that? The scripture says in Luke chapter 2 that the shepherds go out spreading the news, telling everybody about what they had heard and seen, which was just as the angels had confirmed to them. Think of it. The first evangelists were people that couldn't even participate in the worshiping life of the community. The vulnerable outsider comes to the outsiders with great good news. And then and there the kingdom breaks out among us. Brothers and sisters, we won't know anything about God and his kingdom until we see that he comes as a vulnerable outsider bringing good news to the vulnerable and to the outsiders. Are you with me this morning? This is how our God comes not as a powerful leader, not as one of the rich, not as one of the prosperous, not as one of the religiously well-to-do. That's not how our God comes. He comes as a stranger. He comes as a wanderer. He comes as an outsider. And it's no wonder then that the presence of Jesus resonated so much with the people that it did resonate with in the first century. You think about the kinds of folks that related to Jesus, the kinds of folks that followed Jesus around. It was the crowds, wasn't it? It was the crowds. It was the crowds of hungry and thirsty people. It was the crowds of folks that they were outsiders to the flow of the religious life of the community. It was those whose lives had been broken by sin. It was people who had been mired in all kinds of difficulty. It was the crowds that came to Jesus. And the people that had the hardest time with Jesus were who? The rich and the powerful and the religious elite. Guys, those are the ones that had the biggest difficulty with Jesus. Those whose lives were empty, those whose lives were broken, those whose lives were vulnerable, those who had been pushed to the margins, they were the ones that loved Jesus the most. I think about in the story a little bit later in Luke, actually, Luke chapter 7. Luke tells a story about how one day Jesus was invited to the home of one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And he's there, and he's sitting at the table, reclining with them. And they'd served a meal, and they're enjoying dignified religious and spiritual conversation. And the scripture says that a woman who had lived a sinful life in that community, she came while they were sitting at that table. Somehow she got into that place, that house, and she came up beside Jesus where he was. She was carrying, the scripture says, an alabaster jar full of perfume. And while these dignified people were having their dignified conversation, do you know what she did? She got down at his feet, And she starts weeping. And as her tears fell, they fell upon his feet. And so she took, she undid her hair. And she took her hair and she took the alabaster jar of perfume. And she poured it on the feet of the Messiah. And she began to wipe his feet with her hair. And everybody that was at the dinner party that day, the scripture says that they were embarrassed and taken aback. And Simon, the Pharisee, who's hosting this dinner party, he can't believe what he's seeing. He's thinking to himself, how can this man... Let this woman touch him. She's unclean. She's a sinner. She's lived a sinful life. How can he do that? And Jesus, the scripture says, knowing Simon's thoughts, said, Simon, I got a question I want to ask you about. And he told this story. He said, Two people owed a money lender a certain amount of money. One owed about a year's and a year and a half's worth of wages, and another person owed just about a month and a half's amount. Neither of them had the resources to pay the money lender back. So the money lender canceled the debts of both. And Jesus said, who do you suppose will love the money lender more? The one who is forgiven a lot or the one who is forgiven a little? Simon says, the one who is forgiven a lot. And he says, that's exactly what's happening here. Don't you see? She knows the sin of her life and she knows her brokenness and she knows how she's been excluded and she feels the mercy that's coming off of my life. And when I came into this place, Jesus says, you didn't provide a basin for washing my feet. And nobody helped me out. Nobody really did anything for me. But this woman, from the time I entered, she hasn't stopped weeping at my feet and worshiping at my feet. And don't you think that her many sins have been forgiven because she loved much. These are the kinds of people that Jesus brought near. The kind of people that otherwise would have been pushed to the margins, Jesus brings near. And he says to them, just like he said to the woman that day, Your faith has saved you. Everything's okay, lady. It's all good. I know what you've done. I've seen to the bottom of it. And I know how you've been treated. I know how you've been excluded. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm saying to you this morning that this is what our God is like. Matthew, one of Jesus' friends, one of his disciples says of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the nations will put their hope. You say, what does it look like when God comes among us? He comes as a vulnerable outsider to the vulnerable and to the outsiders and the bruised reed he won't break and the smoldering wick he won't snuff out. This is who he is. Are you with me this morning, brothers and sisters? Wherever Jesus is and whatever he does, he's doing this. He's doing this. I think about an interview that I saw one time with an Iranian woman who became a believer. She, they, she was being interviewed about her background, her upbringing. How did you become a Christian? She was telling her testimony. And she said, You know, it's a good thing to be a woman, she said. And it's a good thing to be Iranian. But it's a very difficult thing, she said, to be an Iranian woman. Growing up Muslim, she said, I always just felt like I was at this disadvantage all the time. And she said, and I felt like for all the years that I grew up Muslim, she said, "I, I just felt like in my religious tradition and in my culture, even though it was good to be Iranian and it's good to be a woman, I just felt like my culture pushed me to the edges. That everything in my religious upbringing and everything in our culture told me that I was less than and that I was worthless and that if I wanted to be a good citizen in kind of my little sphere, that I had to stand over here and do these things and just behave and don't speak up too much. She said, and then I met Jesus. She said, and whereas my Muslim upbringing pushed me to the edges, Jesus brought me to the middle. That's it guys. He comes as a vulnerable outsider. And he comes to the vulnerable and he comes to the outsiders and he says, come to the middle. You have a place in my kingdom. You have a place of honor. You have a place of dignity in that place where you have been degraded, in that place where your life has been torn to shreds, in that place where you have been excluded. I'm bestowing a crown of honor on you. I was pushed to the edges, but Jesus brought me to the middle. This is our God. And I've experienced this, I know you have too, over and over again in my life I've experienced this. I think one of the first and maybe most significant times I experienced it was I was a freshman or a sophomore at Oral Roberts University, 19 years old or so, 18 or 19. And I come, as I've told you before, I come from a little town in central Wisconsin, Marshfield, Wisconsin, 18,000 people. And I was not a famous person. I was not connected to anybody famous. I did not know anybody famous, you know? And I remember coming The Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know. Oral Roberts University. To me it was like the Hollywood of Christianity, you know. (laughs) And I remember being there and it seemed like every person I met was either the son or the daughter or the grandson or the granddaughter of some famous televangelist or author or public speaker or somebody. Or if they weren't blood lineage related you know they knew these people everybody knew somebody and i remember being there just feeling like i was well i was the vulnerable i was the outsider i don't know anybody you know and i don't have any connections and moreover it seemed like the lord was promoting a lot of my classmates and using a lot of my classmates and i just remember those first couple years just feeling like i was so pushed to the edges just by way of my upbringing my circumstances and all of that and what's more I felt at that time, I felt a really powerful call in my spirit. a call to ministry. I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to do something useful with my life. And it just didn't feel like the Lord was opening any doors. And it didn't feel like I knew anybody. And what was more, I felt led by the Lord to study business at ORU of all things. And I felt like an idiot studying business. What am I doing studying business? If I feel a call to preach. And it felt like the circumstances of my life were pushing me more and more over the edges. And I, in my guts, I felt like this ache still to preach. And I'm going, how is that going to work? And then to add insult to injury, to insult to injury, at that time, I remember starting to develop this like odd fear of public speaking. You know, I know that you think that that's stupid listening to me now, but it's true. I remember being asked in my oral interpersonal communication class to give a five-minute presentation on something mundane like vacuum cleaners and Caused me abject panic, you know, despair. How can I do this? And then I'm thinking, how am I going to preach if I'm not anybody famous? I don't know anybody famous. I don't have any connections. I'm studying business and I'm afraid of public speaking. I remember being vexed about all of this one day. coming out of class and walking out of the GC, the General Classroom Center, one day. And I can tell you the stare that I was on, complaining to the Lord about all of this. Lord, you see all of this, and you know all of this, and I don't know anybody, and I'm not anybody, and I'm studying business, and the fear of public speaking, and all this is all so stupid, and I don't know, what, Lord? And I remember being about, on about the third step, and I remember hearing the Lord say to me, don't you think I knew about all of that when I called you? <laughs> how, how, how do you think this works? How do you think my kingdom works? That it's all about who you know, and it's all about who you're connected to, and it's all about having powerful connections, and it's all about having the right pedigree and being Mr. Amazing. Is that what you think that this is about? That what I do is I go out and I pluck Mr. and Mrs. Amazing out from the crowds and I use those people? Is that how you think that this works? And I remember the scripture coming back to me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were influential, he says, but God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He, told, uh, he chose the foolish things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him, Paul says, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He comes as a vulnerable outsider. He comes to the vulnerable. He comes to the outsiders, to those that have been pushed around, to those that have been excluded, to those who have been left behind. And he says to them, pull up a chair, baby. You get the seat of honor at my table. You get the seat of honor at my table. You are royalty. You're a son. You're a daughter of the living God. And I'm building my kingdom on you and with you and through you. Caesar is nothing in my sight. Rome and its power is nothing in my sight. But my kingdom is of an altogether different order. I want to ask you this morning... Where do you feel vulnerable? Where do you feel like you're an outsider? Where do you feel like life has overlooked you? Where do you feel like you have been pushed around? Where do you feel like you have been left to the side? Where do you feel like that? Where do you feel like you've got nothing and you've got no one? Where do you feel like you have been forgotten? Where, where is that place for you? Where does it feel like life has just dealt you an unfair hand and nobody's really looking at you? Where does it feel like your life has been ruined and degraded? Where where does it feel like that for you? Wherever that place is for you, I have good news for you. Better than that, I've got a God for you. This is what our God looks like when he walks around among us. I've been reading the sermons of the great reformer Martin Luther. He has this one sermon for the third Sunday of Advent where he's wrestling with this question. Why is it that Christ comes among the lowly? Why does he come among the dispossessed and the unprivileged? Why doesn't he come like Caesar? Why doesn't he come like a rich king, a powerful ruler? Why doesn't he come with eloquence and superior wisdom? Why? Why does he come the way that he comes? And Luther says this. He says the reason that Jesus comes the way that he comes is because the kings of the world... They need to surround themselves with power and privilege and prestige. They need to surround themselves with celebrities to hide the basic insecurity that they feel. They're afraid. The kings of the earth are afraid. Caesar is afraid. He's afraid that people are going to take things from him. And so what he does is he bolsters himself with power and privilege and wealth and riches and might. But because Jesus Christ is utterly secure in who he is, he doesn't need any of that stuff. So, do you know what he does? He comes among the poor, and he comes among the lame, and he comes among the blind, he comes among the dispossessed, he comes among the privileged. He doesn't need anything from them. So, do you know what he does because he's secure in himself? He gives everything to them, he gives them dignity. He gives them position, he gives them place, he gives them title, he gives everything. He has no insecurity that he has to mask or hide. So he doesn't need to surround himself with the rich. He doesn't need to surround himself with celebrities. He surrounds himself with the rabble. He surrounds himself with the poor and the broken and the abused, because he's here for us, not for himself. That's the kingdom of Jesus. And when we forget this, we go dangerously astray. Henry Nouwen, one of the great spiritual writers of the 20th century, said that every time we see a major crisis in the church, we always see that a major cause is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. See, the wrong response to our insecurity, the wrong response to our feeling like we're vulnerable and that we're outsiders is to try to mask all of that. Oh, if I just cover over all of that somehow, if I just know some famous people, if I just get some more riches and wealth and prosperity and just make everybody think that I'm going to, that's, that's the wrong way to fix it. You know what Jesus calls us to do? To just keep receiving the mercy and then extend the mercy. There's a church, famous church, that has been in the headlines recently. A pastor was removed for immorality. And as they started doing investigation in the church, what's going on there? One of the things that they discovered was that a celebrity culture had formed at this church and they would take the first three rows of the church on Sundays and they would reserve them for celebrities and the celebrities would come wandering in on Sunday morning and they would try to tuck themselves in just to worship with everybody else and the ushers were instructed to find the celebrities if they walked in and to bring them to the front. Disgusting culture. Needless to say it's anti the way of Jesus and I'm not here this morning to throw stones at anybody. Let he who's without sin cast the first Stone, I'm here to say that that's anti the way of Jesus. And I'm also here to say that every one of us has that impulse in us. But that's a Caesar approach to insecurity. It's a Caesar approach to weakness and to fear. What we do is we try to cover it over. It's all about who you know. And when I think about my own life, when I think about how I've walked with Jesus, the best times of my life, the most wholesome times of my life, have been when I've just let myself be a recipient of the mercy and I've given the mercy away. Because then I can stand in that place that's poor. I can stand in that place that's vulnerable. I can stand in that place that's overlooked and not be disturbed by that. And it trains me in a certain way of seeing. That all of a sudden I can notice those that are overlooked and those that are vulnerable and those that have been pushed to the edges. And I can be a a conduit for the mercy of God, bringing them to the middle. I want to ask you this morning, what kind of a people do we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of people that are grasping for power? Or do we want to be the kind of people that seek those on the edges and bring them to the middle? I know what I want to be. Do you? Let's stand, prepare our hearts for communion. Oh, we need you this morning, Jesus. Family, would you just begin to search your hearts? Search your hearts. Search your hearts. We thank you that as we come to the table this morning, we come as the objects of your mercy, the recipients of your mercy. It's not that the rich and the powerful and the elites don't need you. It's that being rich and elite and powerful, they just don't recognize their need for you. All of us need you. Simon the Pharisee needed you. Just like the woman who fell down at your feet and wept and washed your feet, she needed you. We all do. And you come among us as complete benefit to us if we're willing to receive you. And so this morning we repent of self-sufficiency and we repent of our wrong response to our feelings of vulnerability and weakness, where we've tried to cover ourselves over and make life all about who we know and all of that, it's not about who we, well, actually, at the end of the day, it is about who we know. We know you. You make us your sons and daughters. You make us royalty. And for that, we're grateful. And so we come to you this morning repentantly, and we come to you humbly, and we make this our prayer before you as we come to the table. We say, most merciful God, and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Christ is all benefit for us. He is all consolation for us. He is all refuge for us. And if you have taken refuge in Christ this morning, if you know him as your refuge, if you can receive this as good news, give God praise this morning. Amen and amen and amen. The team is gonna lead us in a song of worship here. I'll be back up in a moment or two to lead us to the table. Let's worship. Brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity love, power. Jesus, we're coming to you. We're coming to you. You said nobody comes to you unless the Father who sent you draws that person. This morning we have been drawn by the goodness of God. We're drawn to the table. We're drawn to your mercy. We ask that as we come to the table this morning that you would lay your hands upon us, that you would bless us, that you'd remind us of the dignity that you've given us in the kingdom, that you would remind us of the destiny that you've called us to, that you'd remind us of who we belong to and what that means for us, Lord Jesus. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. We're coming now as we are, just as we are. And we ask that you come and find us here at the table. And so the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread And he broke it. Let's break it together. And he said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body. It's broken for a broken humanity, shattered for a shattered humanity, marred for a marred humanity. This is how God comes, vulnerably to rescue the vulnerable. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, this is how God comes. Pouring his life out unto death to make us alive. The cup of the new covenant. Let's take it together. And can we now begin to lift up our adoration one more time to the Lord? We say thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We lift up your name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's sing it together. Praise God. Lift up your hands and receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You are loved. Good to see you our online crowd. You're uh, good to see you as well. Remember if you're new with us, grab a little gift at Connect Central. We'll see you next Sunday. Grace, mercy and peace be with you.